listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I know you're saying, I can't believe there's another podcast. The guy hasn't seemed to be able to get one out in a month, and now all of a sudden they're coming <laughs> practically weekly. It's crazy. You say, how does he do it? How has he done it? <laughs> yeah, these are, these are, these are uh, I guess you could call them classic episodes. And this week, it really is a classic because David Fleischer is one of the great unsung heroes of our political future. I mean, if we have a political future, if there is, if there's going to be any coming together in this country and any sort of reapproachment from ultra conservatives and ultra liberals and the people in the middle, if there's going to be any reconnection. It's going to be because of people like David Fleischer who, who have invested themselves in figuring out how to engage in a constructive conversation about political stuff, deeply felt, gut-level political stuff. And so if David Fleischer was important back in back when he in, developed um, deep canvassing, uh, you know, a, a decade ago around gay ma- the gay marriage issue in California, he's way more important now that we're trying to figure out how to dig our way out of the polarization that, 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 and I don't even want to say that we've created, that the algorithms have, you know, we, we, we had the seeds of this in our hearts all along and the algorithms figured out a way to fertilize them and germinate them and bring them to life. And so if there's a way out, I think David Fleischer's a part of it. I think what he knows is a part of it. And that's why I'm, you know, I I want to I want to share this conversation. If you haven't heard this conversation, or even if you have, you, you might want to hear it again. But if you haven't heard this conversation, I, this was one of the one of the the people that's really shaped the way I think about interaction. Um, and he's just a, he's just a good soul. I mean, I think you're just going to like him. So then, without any further ado. This is my conversation with David Fleischer about deep canvassing and other good stuff. I will see you on the other side with a quote. Hey, thanks for making time to talk with me. Oh, well, sure, Bart. Dave, how old are you, man? I'm 64. You know, that used to sound old to me. Uh, it still but, sounds old to me. I know, but like now that I'm 56, like I used to think 64, like I can't even see that from where I am. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just around the corner. Uh, well, so, yes, that is uh, chronologically correct, Bart. <laughs> so so how long have you been in in the role that you're in now at the LGBTQ Center? Or what, what do they call the thing? What, what's the name of it right now? Uh Uh, So I work for the Los Angeles LGBT Center, and I've been there. It'll be, uh, it's almost 10 years, uh, and I've been doing, uh, I've been doing political organizing my whole adult life, and I really started out as a boy. My first time going door-to-door canvassing, I was 15, so uh, 
Who are you canvassing for? That was for Howard Metzenbaum when he was running for the U.S. Senate in Ohio in the Democratic primary, and he upset John Glenn. Oh my goodness! So yeah, so almost fifty, almost fifty years of uh, yeah. So so did you grow up in Ohio? Yes, I grew up in Chillicothe, Ohio, not far from where I gather you are right now. I am. I'm, I'm right here in in the heart of Cincinnati. Yeah. No, I have fond yeah. memories of Cincinnati, but even more of Columbus. And uh, but you know, uh, <laughs> uh, Chillicothe for 18 years, and my dad still lives in the house we grew up in. So I'm back in Chillicothe on a, a pretty regular basis. What was growing up like for you in Chillicothe? Well, it, 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 we were I mean, I, I just think, like, I would, I'm, I'm sorry, let me contextualize that question. Yeah, yeah, there I are mean, a lot of things I could tell you. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just down at the Pride Parade um, this past weekend, um, and it was in Cincinnati, which was so different from the Pride Parade I had been to in Los Angeles. Yeah. And- and and I I the more questions I asked, the more I became aware that growing up different in Ohio is very different than growing up different in Los Angeles. That the that the community here is in just a very different place. Yeah, yeah. And well, so, and even more so then, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, growing up in Chillicothe. Uh, in retrospect, right, uh, I was aware that some uh, people were gay, but I didn't know any. And I certainly <clears throat> didn't ever want to talk about this. And uh, I've known since I was six that I was gay or attracted to men. I didn't really have the vocabulary at that time. Right. So. I, uh, yeah, so I knew, I knew that uh, this was true about myself and that I must never speak of it. And I don't know how I learned that so clearly. Uh, we were also the only Jewish family in Chillicothe, Ohio. So I have memories <laughs> starting at age six of, uh, <clears throat> of, uh, I, I have memories from every year of my life starting at age six, uh, about people reacting to my being Jewish. Uh, not uh, in an unkind way, but just being surprised by it, curious about it. Uh, I, it what I learned very early on is that I was, uh, you know, uh, not normal. <laughs> and right. uh, so being Jewish, maybe that was good practice, uh, but, but I didn't try to apply that to talking about being gay. When did you, I mean, so were you in a big family or a small family? Uh, my mom and dad, and uh, there were four of us kids when I was growing up. Yeah. I mean, I'm just wondering like at what point, you know, I, I, it's funny because when I, I, I grew up in this very evangelical world and spent 30 years as an evangelical minister before, you know, finally realizing there was nothing left of my supernatural credulity. But when I came out, when I sort of told people like, yeah, I'm done with this, uh, with, with, with believing, they were all like, yeah, we knew that. We wondered when you'd figure it out. Um, and and, 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 and I've, a lot of my gay friends said, yeah, that was kind of my experience coming out 
that everybody else had sort of be, was aware of what I was not saying out loud or what did your siblings know who you were? Did they, did they figure that out, but without you telling them or did, did you have to tell them? You know, I don't think anybody in our immediate family knew. And I, 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 my impression at the time was that I was doing a truly fabulous job, uh, fooling everybody. Uh, but, uh, I did have experiences, uh, before I came out that, that did, give me a little bit of a clue that in fact, uh, maybe I wasn't fooling, uh, very many people at all. So I, uh, I had a job between my junior and senior year in college. And I was working as a prison guard in Texas. What? That's not your usual summer job. No, no, not for somebody going to Rice. Uh, and, uh, but I was really, I, I was majoring in sociology and criminal justice was super interesting. And uh, I was fascinated by prisons and I was writing my senior thesis on this. So uh, it seemed like the best way I would have something original to contribute would be to see what in the world this was really like, because it was a world, right. of course, I only knew from reading, not from real experience. And uh, so it was certainly in my first week, might have even been my first day on the job that uh, everybody in the prison figured out I was gay. Uh not, not that we ever talked about it. It just became, uh, they, they realized somehow that I was gay. And, uh, and, and I think the single biggest indicator that tipped them off was that I was kind and polite to the inmates. Wow. You know, I, I just wondered if, if <laughs> isn't that funny that that it is, that, it is, you know, but, uh, you know, because the norm in the prison was to refer to people uh, either by their last name only, right? Or uh, by uh, a racial term that I never yeah. use. And, uh, and I, I think the fact that I wasn't going to use that racial term was shocking. And it was certainly non-normative because almost all of the guards were white or seemingly white. And uh, virtually all the inmates were black. So uh, and, they didn't and, think you were they didn't think you were soft. They, they immediately went to gay. Well, maybe it's the same thing for them. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. But in any event, suspect and other and an outsider. Uh, and, uh, and 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 so interestingly enough, that affected. Uh, some of the assignments that I got or didn't get because uh, uh, they quickly realized they wanted me mostly in what's called the control picket. It's the glassed in booth in the main hallway where, you know, you're controlling some of the doors in and out of the prison and you're doing a wide variety of other tasks. And, uh, but you're not uh, moving guys around there side by side with inmates. Whereas some of the jobs where you'd be in the main hallway of the prison, you'd be right there, uh, 
And so I guess, you know, they were thinking uh, that, that yeah. I don't know if they were thinking that inmates would physically try to take advantage of me or, you know, part of the disciplinary proceedings in the prison at that time included guards physically, I mean, you would really call it assaulting yeah. inmates. And uh, I think they discerned that I, I wouldn't be the right guy for that job. That's so interesting. And so, so, so other than the prison population of Texas, when did the rest of the world figure out? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think a different, you know, it's very hard for me to judge this. Uh, a, because, you know, I'm, I'm just the way I am. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, but for instance, we were just canvassing uh, June 15th in a conservative, predominantly Republican uh, area. And uh, the first voter that uh, I spoke with, really wonderful woman in her late 70s, Rosella, and uh, Republican through and through, we had uh, a conversation at the beginning uh, where, you know, uh, as we were talking, she made it very, very clear that she was a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. She was only voting Republican. She was a single-issue voter. That was abortion, and she was very anti-abortion. So we have this conversation. It's it's actually very civil and uh, even kind uh, because I think she's a little surprised that I'm so willing to just listen and not contradict her. I'm just curious about how she sees things. But but uh, in the course of this, you know, in our deep canvassing, uh, we tell a story about somebody we love and we ask each voter to tell us about somebody they love. And she didn't tell me a story about somebody she loved. And, you know, uh, so the conversation wrapped up without my learning anything very deep about Rosella. So then um, I leave and I'm, and I'm training a new canvasser, an organizer visiting from Michigan, Betsy. So Betsy and I sit on the curb and we talk about the conversation and how it went, what Betsy thought about it. And Rosella comes back out of the house to find us. And she comes over and continues the conversation, uh, but in a very different way. She actually says, you know, I will tell you a story. And uh, she, she, so we talked for another five minutes, very pleasant, even more relaxed now. And Rosella goes back home. So Betsy and I continue debriefing. And then we are on our way to the next house. Rosella comes out again to find me and Betsy. <laughs> and uh, she says, you know, there's something else I want to tell you. Uh, I have a son and he's gay. Now, my being gay has not yet come up in this entire conversation. So what I've got to assume is that Rosella has very clearly seen me as a gay man. And, yeah. uh, and, and she's trying to connect. Uh, yeah, well, she's trying to connect, but also, uh, it, in other words, uh, there's nothing, uh, it, it must be so obvious that Rosella immediately sees this or right, concludes right. this. So then I do come out to her and we have 
a lovely discussion about her son. And she tells me an even more important story about somebody she loves. Um, uh, we This conversation goes on longer. Ten minutes later, she goes home. Um, uh, you know, uh, Betsy and I are about to go each our separate ways now, uh, canvassing different doors. Rosella comes back with a plant for Betsy and a spatula for me uh, because she has housewares. She's been giving away and people have taken the dishes, but nobody has taken three spatulas that are very nice, uh, that are very usable. And uh, she offers me there one. You go. So the, uh, the bottom line is probably a lot of people over the course of my life uh, saw me as gay and uh, they didn't offer me a spatula and a story about a gay person. But, uh, you know, they they I, I so I, I'm a bad judge is what I'm telling you of who right, knows right. and who doesn't. But but, you know, at some point, Dave, at some point you become. This kind of I don't know what to call it, like this kind of maestro of canvassing. Um, you know, you, you you took a couple of my USC students canvassing a few weeks ago and they called me and it was like they had been out with a magician. They just couldn't believe the conversations that they got into and they couldn't believe the power of listening and sharing stories the way that you taught them to and the way that you showed them. It's like, I'm trying to get from Rice University, I'm going like, where did this deep canvas thing thing, where did it come from in your life? Like, how did you come to be a deep canvasser? Yeah. Well, uh, Katie and Joey are great, by the way. Aren't they wonderful? They really are. They're the best. Yeah. They're the best. Yeah. Well, you know, there are two ways I could tell you this story. So I'll tell you uh, the short way, right, is that uh, deep canvassing uh, in a way was a total accident and discovering it was an accident because, right, I started canvassing when I was 15. And there are a lot of assumptions that are conventionally made when you go door to door. And, and I would say, although uh, I broke some of the rules, uh, I would say a lot of the assumptions embedded in conventional canvassing, I hadn't even recognized. And I can tell you more about those. But the bottom line is, it, it was really uh, not until 2008 when California had a big statewide vote on gay marriage called Prop 8. And all the polling showed that the LGBT community would, would win easily. And, and we lost. And, uh, and, and, you know, the day-to-day -day experience of living in California, if you're LGBT, can be very positive. So it's really shocking to think that a majority of the people voting are voting against us. And for the LGBT community, it was a moment of great upset and anger and shock. And also, I think, uh, uh, a, a sense of, of uh, powerlessness because it revealed to us that we didn't know as much 
about our neighbors as we thought we did. And we didn't I can't know. even imagine that. Like what it would be like to, it would be like me waking up one day and finding out that all my neighbors had suddenly said they weren't okay with Bart Campolo. Yeah. So it's very hurtful. And, and people didn't really know what to do. And so uh, the guy who's now my boss asked me uh, to come out to California. I wasn't here for Prop 8. I was working uh, in the run-up to the 2008 election doing different projects in Florida and in Ohio. And, uh, but he said, please come out here and meet with people. We need to figure out a positive, constructive way forward because the things that came to mind for people were angry marches. And although those have some place, they don't get you far. They really don't. Uh, and so, uh, so I came out, met with people. It was, he was right. People weren't sure at all what they could do. It felt like everything people knew to do had been done. The campaign had spent $40 million. Uh, and uh, so uh, anyway, the best idea I had was since it seems that we didn't know as much as we thought we did about uh, our neighbors, maybe what we ought to do is go door to door to talk to the people who voted against us and ask them why they did that. Yeah, find out what's going on there. And it turns out, honestly, Bart, that's the smartest idea I've ever had in my life. Uh, and uh, it also shows what a dimwit I can be because I've lost plenty of other elections and that idea would have been really good, but it had never occurred to me in decades uh, previously that maybe talking to people who voted against us after the election would be informative. Uh, so, but that's, that's what put us on this path. Yeah. I remember listening to, was it, was it this American life that did that great piece on deep canvassing? Yeah, they did a couple. Yeah. I remember listening to that and thinking, why have I never thought of this? Why has nobody ever thought of this? Why don't people try to find out why people disagree with them? Yeah. And I think, the best way I can understand it is that uh, at least many of the people on the progressive side of things, we have, a, we have an irrational confidence in rationality and we have an, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and we have an irrational confidence in telling in, that if we, we somehow think that if we just correct people and tell them where they're wrong, factually or in some other way, that they'll change. And, 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 and in fact, if we really reflect for even a minute, we, we would realize that hypothesis, uh, you know, we, we know it's not true. We know it from our own experience, right? Think about the last time you changed your mind about something really important to you? Was it because somebody told you you had it all wrong and they offered you some facts to correct you? Yeah. You know, I doubt it, right? Because it sounds like you've had several, you know, really powerful moments of changing your mind. 
Absolutely. I, mean, I was talking to an author the other day, and she was explaining about this person who, who she, when she was a, a Jehovah's Witness missionary in um, China, like going door to door in China, trying to sell Jehovah's Witness stuff. Um, and she ended up in an internet relationship, like an online chat room relationship with some guy who was asking her questions about why she believed what she believed. And, and he was reasoning with her, but it was like the ideas were important, but it was the relationship that changed her. And she was very clear about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you, when, when you had this sort of brainstorm, when you, when, 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 when this idea occurred to you, let's go talk to these people. How, how difficult was it for you to figure out how to talk to them? Like how, like how to knock on the, I mean, obviously you had great experience at knocking on doors. Um, but how did you get people to talk with you? Well, first of all, right. Going into it, we realized we didn't even know if these people would talk with us. Right. And in fact, there were, uh, the only way we were going to find out was by trying it because, uh, we didn't know anybody who had ever tried it. And in fact, I don't think I have ever yet met anybody <laughs> who took this approach. So, um, we, uh, you mean before or, or, or even now, even now, do you well, feel before, like a, a, well, a voice no, in the wilderness? Before. Well, before, in other words, I, I, there wasn't anybody I could call up and say, what was it like when you went out after an election canvassing the people who voted against you? As, as obvious as this idea now seems, it's not clear to me that anybody has ever done this. And it's certainly so far from normal political practice, at least on the progressive side, that uh, we, were, we were in totally unknown territory. So uh, we actually had a meeting at, there's a wonderful Methodist church in Hollywood uh, uh, with a big room. We had 95 people there most of them who had been very active in the campaign to try to defeat Prop 8. And uh, so uh, we shared different ideas about what to do, but people liked this idea when I shared it. So then what we did is we asked the whole room to think about what, what might make up the conversation. What, what do we want to do? And, uh, and and everybody had different ideas. So we made a list. We just brainstormed and we listed absolutely every idea that people had about what we thought could work. And uh, I had a couple of ideas uh, that I added into the mix. And uh, but it was an amazingly long list of ideas collectively. And we made an agreement that. We would try all of them until we figured out what worked. And in the meantime, uh, the team that was at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, uh, we, we decided that when we went out, not only would we try all of these different things, not all in one conversation, but we would eventually work our way through that. But the way we would track 
what we learned. So the way we would record what happens was that we had a piece of paper with four lines on it. The first line at the top left was for what we said. The second line indented and just below it was what the voter then said. Below that, another pair arrayed just the same. So then after the voter says something, what do we say? And what did they say? Because we really didn't even want to create a set of boxes categorizing or characterizing the responses of the voters because uh, because we were sure that we probably knew too little about the way these voters saw things. So we didn't want to end up with an artifact of our own thinking. We really wanted to see if we could listen and learn something new. And so then we organized the canvas and we went out door knocking and we did the best training uh, that we knew at the time to help people be prepared to listen to people who had a different point of view than we did. And it wasn't difficult to know where to go. We had the election results and we were creamed in so many different neighborhoods that we, we had quite a variety to choose from. We ended up over the next five years canvassing almost, in fact, I think, pretty much all of those neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And did it work straight out of the gate? Or did you find out that there's a learning curve over time? Or, or is the idea so intuitive that just, you know, just do it and it works? No, I would say it's not intuitive because we have a bunch of terrible habits. <laughs> and so, right, uh, just like the... Uh, humanists and atheists you were referring to, the things we've done habitually, we tend to keep doing. And the ideas that we had brainstormed, what we rapidly learned is uh, virtually all of them were no good at all. <laughs> so uh, it was very exciting uh, because we were rapidly discarding things uh, as we kept trying. But the things that we learned that encouraged us were, first, these voters were willing to talk with us. That, that was a big surprise, right, to a lot of people, maybe to everybody emotionally. Um, and there was a small amount of unkindness, but overwhelmingly, uh, voters were polite or much better than polite. and. Uh, and then uh, we, we were kind of lucky in that one of the ideas that, you know, had occurred to many people in the room uh, turned out to be the second best idea. We, <laughs> and, but not a close second best. It's like if you had a hundred story building, what we've... Uh, over the course of 15,000 conversations, that's really what it took, we learned what was the number one best thing. But if like that's your 100th top floor, uh, you know, effective thing to do, drop down 90 floors to number two. But number two was still effective. And we discovered that pretty early on. 
and then virtually everything else uh, not impactful at all because many of the ideas that we had were all predicated on telling people something. So the number two idea uh, also involves telling, but it's when we tell a personal story about somebody we love or about ourselves. That, that, uh, that was number two. Yeah. And, uh, but it took us a long time to stumble on number one. So what's number one? The number one most important thing we can do once we're out there talking to people who, you know, see the world differently than we do is to, it's not us telling our story about somebody we love. It's eliciting from the voter a story of theirs about somebody they love. That's what's important. Somebody they love that's somehow being affected or they think is being affected by whatever it is that you're talking about? Well. Or does it not matter? The more I've done this, the more I think it doesn't matter. But what does matter is that it's a story where they're vulnerable. It has emotional significance for them. And the person they're talking about uh, and the experience they're relating, they're describing it in the kind of detail that you do when you're telling a story that you're never going to forget. It matters to you so much. And so it could be a story about somebody they love being judged unfairly or unkindly, uh, but it could just be a story that indicates that uh, this is somebody they love and why they love them. Or it could be a story, in, in other words, the, uh, the common ground really is not around the political point or the opinion. That might end up being where we discover common ground by the end. But in the beginning, right, these are people who, you know, are opposed to gay and lesbian couples getting married. So there's no common ground on the opinion of is, uh, is marriage for gay and lesbian couples a good thing or acceptable. That's where there isn't common ground. But where there is common ground is people talking about, for instance, their own marriage. Somebody they love who they got married to in a heterosexual relationship. And then asking them, how's the marriage worked out? And, and, and overwhelmingly, people were telling us that marriage is uh, the best thing they ever did. And this person in their life has been so incredibly important to them in so many ways. And if you just are willing to listen and ask, Tell me, tell me why it's the best thing you ever did. There's this beautiful story. And, uh, and so then there is some common ground. The common ground is when you love somebody, when you're lucky enough to find somebody you love enough that you want to spend your life with them, 
of course you want to marry yeah, them. Of course you want to do that, yeah. And, and so all of a sudden there's enormous common ground. We're agreeing with them and they're agreeing with us on how lucky you are when you get to marry the person you love. Has, has this way of talking with people percolated into the rest of your life? I mean, I, my, my sense is that you were probably all, always a fairly sensitive listener. Um, or at least you, you come across as somebody who's always been attuned to other people. But do you feel like recognizing what was happening out there in the big world when you were knocking on doors of strangers, do you feel like that's changed the way you talk to your friends and your family? Yeah, I'm so sorry to inform you that uh, I, I had such remarkable room to improve as a listener. <laughs> <laughs> it's really embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've we've gotten very good fairly early on as we started uh canvassing. It became clear that when we failed with an idea, it was really easy for us to explain that to each other. We would debrief, we would know it didn't work, we could get rid of it. But when we started to find ideas that worked a little bit, uh or when voters said things that surprised us, it was very difficult to even understand in conversation among each other what had worked. And uh, so the other really big idea that I feel like I contributed, and it's kind of funny, it occurred to me, but it just occurred to me we needed to try to video these conversations. And I... And I remember talking with Regina about it, who was one of my colleagues. And when I told her I thought we ought to do this, she just laughed and laughed and laughed. She said, Dave, Dave, we're going door to door, seeking out uh, homophobes and coming out to them. And you think they're going to want to talk with us on video? Uh, you know, and of course, I had no idea if they would. I had never tried doing it. I had never known of a canvas doing it. Uh, and in the beginning, it, it was very, uh, we couldn't figure out how to do it because, of course, you need the person's consent. Sure. Um, and how do you even ask? But then we did figure it out slowly but surely. Uh, and, and so one of the, the first video we have of me canvassing on marriage is still a really valuable piece of video that sometimes I use to show what bad listening looks like. Yeah, it must have been. I, I mean, this podcast is, you know, when I do the podcast that I do and I have to listen to me talking to other people, I'm horrified. <laughs> well, right. I'm just horrified. It, well, there's all. So, in, in other words, uh, yes, if you had asked me, I would have said, oh, I'm a fabulous listener. Actually, I would not have said that. <laughs> I would have lied to you. I would have said, oh, I'm pretty good. But what I would have been thinking is, oh, I'm a fabulous listener. And uh, yeah, but the truth is, um, I would say I was a very, very selective listener. I listened for agreement with things <laughs> that I already believed. And, I'll, and, and then, you know, that habit of you listen, right? I think it's Fran Lebowitz who said uh, the opposite of, Listening isn't talking, it's, it's waiting. 
And so when you're reloading, that's right. So they're talking and you're being quiet, but you're not really listening. You're just ready to get your next remark in. And uh, you already know what you're going to go with. And uh, so, yes, there's no question that uh, that I've had to become a much, much better listener than I was. I, I have this friend, Anthony Magnabosco, who he does this thing called street epistemology, where he's out on the street with a clipboard and a video camera. And he just asks people if he can talk to them about some deeply held belief of theirs. And uh, it's it's not deep canvassing because he doesn't really he, he he listens to their them talk about their beliefs, but like it's it's a very reasoning kind of thing. It's about epistemology and why do you think what you think. Mm-hmm. But he does but he does videotape people, and uh, and he's told me the same thing that there's as painful as it can be. There's something about watching ourselves do it that you can actually see in your own eyes, like when when you stop listening. And, and when you go to the next idea, and of course, if you can see it, so, so can the other person. Um, so, so you, you feel like you, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know you got better over time at deep canvassing. And it sounds like you can deep canvas about not just, not just gay marriage, but you can deep canvas about almost anything. Well, we're trying to see if that's true. What we did in 2018 that we discovered we that and we got pretty good at is deep canvassing voters who who mostly don't vote and canvassing them to see if uh, we could help them reconsider and decide that they're going to vote and they're going to vote even in a midterm election on the tenth thing on the ballot which is where the race for Congress was in Orange County, where we were canvassing. I could tell you, you know, there was a lot we had to discover that's specific to that group of people and to, and to the changes that we were hoping we could encourage people to make. I feel like we've got a set of principles about deep canvassing that we know pretty well, but there's still a significant amount of learning each time we try to apply it to something new. Because understanding somebody else's point of view when it's different than ours, uh, it's just not, it's just not immediate. It's just not. This, this, this thing that happens to me so often with people in their families and among their friendships, but just in the world where where the issue of being an openly secular person sometimes feels like a challenge to the other person. And I'm, I'm really trying to figure out how to teach people how to talk to their, to people who are believers and how to talk to them, not necessarily always to try to change their, their, their mind, but, but more to try to change their heart. Um, to try to create a context in which they can see goodness in the other position. Um, and so I, I do feel like, I feel like there's some stuff I want to learn. Um, and I also, I guess, I guess I'm curious if, if you think, if you think it's important to talk to people about faith stuff, because it, I mean, in some ways I feel like when you were talking about gay marriage, you were talking about 
an article of faith for people, um, for many people. You know, it's it's not a rational thing. It's it's something that they deep, believe deep in their hearts. And so, yeah, I, I guess I'm really glad to hear the story of how you figured out what you're doing. But I've got some technical questions. Yeah, I do think it's the exact same thing. And I think the thing that I'd want to hear from you is, what do you want to accomplish by the end of your conversation? What would success be? Because uh, yeah, I think having secular people and people of faith being able to love and respect each other and talk with each other and listen to each other, it's essential. Because, uh, yeah, there's there's bigotry on both sides, right? Some secular people really have some really – in fact, I could even tell you my own view of faith. Uh, has really changed over the course of my lifetime. And I'm a secular guy. I was a secular guy all the way along. I'm still a secular guy. But I used to have one view of faith and people of faith, and it's really changed. It was interesting because when I talk to the street epistemology people who are lovely, um, a guy named Anthony Magnabosco, who I think you would you would have a lot to talk with about what, but one of the things I always struggle with with them is like, what's their motivation? Like, why do you want to have that conversation? Is it about changing somebody's mind? Is it about like getting them to abandon a bad belief or a bad way of making decisions? You know, like kind of what are you about? And, and I, I get different answers from different people. But as as I think about these 400 days between now and November and you running around or you helping other people run around Ohio uh, talking with people, wh- what are you hoping to what, – what, what are you trying to what – what's the point of these conversations? Like what do you want to happen? What, what would be a good conversation? Oh, well, we do want to change people. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't need to be I, – I, when we're talking with somebody who's registered to vote, but who doesn't vote, we want them to start voting. <laughs> we're very unequivocal about that, right? But the, the, real, the reason the conversations are really different than what that might lead you to expect is we put aside our agenda for quite a while in the beginning of the conversation because it, 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 uh, what we've learned is that first, you just need to connect with people. Uh, you have to reach a point where they trust us to be decent, to not be there to shame them or judge them or tell them uh, that they just need to change their life. I don't think anybody really finds that uh, helpful when they receive that. So that isn't what we do. And, uh, and so it has to be enough for us to initiate the conversation and connect with a person and have it go no further than that. That has to be enough because that's the necessary prerequisite before anything deeper can occur. Uh, 
so that means we have a certain number of conversations, right? I, I guess we have some where people don't even allow us to connect, where they say, no, thank you. Uh, but we but we have a significant number where we do connect and uh, but but people are not necessarily going to end up seeing things the way we do. The voter who doesn't vote might decide they still don't want to vote. And, and we have to be okay with that. The thing that's beautiful about taking the time to connect with people and especially to connect around who, who, who do we love? Who do they love? is that that enables us, it, it gives us this wonderful opportunity to help the voter reflect on what is important to them and even to see voting in a different light. Because if they start to reflect on who they love and they start to realize as we talk that voting is a gift you give to the people you love, well, then they may decide as they uh, consider this that, in fact, they would like to vote or they have a different perspective on whether they'd like to vote. So when I say we want to change them, I guess that's paired with uh, a great deal of humility about uh, the fact that we are unable to change them single-handedly. We, were, we are unable to change them in a one-way interaction. Uh, we are unable to just squeeze them into an algorithm, deliver a robotic message, and uh, mold yeah, them I mean, to our will. Right. I mean, that, <laughs> I mean that much I, did, I, 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 I have grasped is that, is that – you, know yeah, you know the play Children of a Lesser God? Oh, I, I saw that movie. Yeah. The movie's great. The play could be even better. I was lucky enough to see it on Broadway with John Rubenstein delivering the performance of a lifetime. But he's a teacher. And his idea of teaching at the beginning of the play is with a great deal of humor and kindness, uh, he can mold the students to be more like him. And what he discovers by the end of the play is, in fact, that's not the way it works. That's not what teaching is. Uh, Teaching, you've got to be content with the truth that uh, the person you want to teach is going to decide for themselves what they want to learn. And that's potentially going to be where you have enormous influence, but there's nothing automatic about it. Yeah, the idea of nurturing the f- the flame that's already there rather than unscrewing the top of their head and pouring in an identity or the or the or the information or the ideas that you want them to have. I guess what I yeah. find what I find myself wondering is like I imagine, you know, when you said 400 days I was like, "Oh, 400 days is not that long." Um I keep thinking that election is farther away. Uh, I guess maybe because there are still 27,000 Democratic candidates. And so I think, well, you know, it's going to take a long time to winnow that down. Oh, Um, I think there's another reason even more profound, which is I think for most people, maybe yourself included, you don't know what you could do 400 days in advance. And uh, 
Whereas it's very clear what you can do on election day. <laughs> and, and every day, one step back from that uh, is a little bit more confusing if you've never uh, gotten involved in, in trying to get more voters on our side. But if somebody was going out there deep canvassing in Ohio, for instance, at this, at this point, my sense is that the goal would probably be less about, I want to convince you not to vote for Donald Trump, or I want you to convince you to vote for Elizabeth Warren or whoever you're excited about, but rather to go, I, I just want to talk, to, like, I want to, I want to try to influence you or change you, as you say, into being somebody who votes for the right reasons. It sounds like your your desire is that people would both vote more, be more likely to vote, and be less likely to vote for mean reasons. Well, there really are two different types of voters that we've been very curious about. And they're really, really different. And what you're speaking to speaks to that difference as well. So when we're talking to infrequent voters, right, uh, uh, in a nonpartisan way, but, but right, meaning we're not favoring one candidate over another or one party over another. And when our objective is really to help them begin the journey to become frequent voters. And, uh, right. And, and, you're, uh, and, we, and I, I'm assuming you're, you're trying to get them to see a connection between it, your vote actually matters in the world. Like it makes a difference for the people that you care about. Like I, I've got to think that one of the main reasons people don't vote is because they don't think it will matter. Well, I, or is that wrong? I, I guess I would be more specific. They, I think it's much clearer to people that they want to vote when they see that their vote is, is something they are doing either for themselves or somebody they love. Uh, and it doesn't have to be to remedy a problem, right? In other words, I think part of the difficulty here is for instance, let's say, right, my dad's 95. And if I was a non-voter, maybe you would think that reminding me that Social Security is important to him and Medicare is important to him. And so that's why I ought to be voting. I, I don't think these instrumental reasons are uh, necessarily going to matter nearly as much as just my thinking through the fact that uh, I love my dad. And, and so when I vote, uh, voting is really about something bigger than, uh, as important as it is, as important as getting Social Security is, as important as Medicare is. Um, what's really even more important is that I'm voting for a kind of society and world where, where love is uh, sort of the guiding principle. So, so in a sense, it's a form of expression where, where you put in, in, it's a way of saying, I care, I love my dad. Well, and there's one step beyond that. 
because otherwise there are a lot of things I could do to express my love to my dad that are not in the public sphere. But we both live, my dad and I live as people who love each other. And we also live in the world uh, that has an impact on how likely it's going to be that people treating other people well is, is going to be the environment in which we get to love each other. And so in a way, Donald Trump is uh, the perfect crystallization for many voters about, uh, about this, uh, because I would say he's the opposite of love, right? What he models every day is uh, he diminishes or demeans somebody instead of what we know when we love people, where we care for them and we rely on them and they rely on us, uh, he's ready to throw anybody under the bus. Anybody is expendable. Uh, and it's Donald Trump models, it's totally great to be just out for yourself. You know, America's number one and he's number one in America. It's like this vision of people who are disconnected from each other, except in combat essentially, and temporary transient alliances. Well, that's the opposite of love. And uh, so if somebody is thinking about who they love, and uh, this is what's interesting when we're talking to infrequent voters, right? You would think, wow, if we want to get infrequent voters to vote, we have to have a long talk about Donald Trump. Uh, we do not. We need to have a long talk about love. And then maybe 5% of the conversation would be about Donald Trump, but they already know that they don't like him. You know, we went back, we canvassed all of 2018. Uh, and after the election was over, we went back to re-canvass a lot of the infrequent voters we had speak, spoken with because we wanted to know, did they vote? And, uh, and uh, did they vote all the way down the ballot? Did they start to become a, a frequent voter, uh, an informed voter? Did, they, did their feelings about voting start to change? And also, who did they vote for? And what was interesting, right, is we didn't have to change their minds about, uh, about Donald Trump. 91% uh, of them, uh, they, they voted against Trump in the way they wanted to without our ever mentioning the words Democrat or Republican. Uh, I guess what I'm telling you is the story of infrequent voters in this country is that the vast majority of them, uh, if they voted, they know who they'd vote for. They would overwhelmingly be voting in a more progressive way than what the rest of the country does. So in a state like Michigan, for instance, where, you know, 2.2 million people voted for Donald Trump in 2016, 2.2 million people voted for Hillary Clinton, Trump narrowly won by 10,704 votes. And at the same time, 2.7 million people who were registered to vote uh, didn't vote in that race. So, uh, you know, if the vast majority of that 2.7 million would have voted against Donald Trump, honestly, Michigan would not have been a close 
contest. And uh, so, so part of the challenge, right? And I think part of the thinking uh, on the part of the people who, uh, uh, I, I, I hate to personalize it so much to Donald Trump because he's not alone by any means, but there are a group of forces that, uh, that know that their ability to compete in elections in this country depend on a lot of people not voting. And uh, so in a variety of ways, right, they discourage people from voting. They mechanically make it difficult, but even more importantly, they make politics seem dirty and rotten and fake and uh, something that decent people might stay away from. They make it confusing and mystifying. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation that they offer. And then finally, uh, they really offer a variety of types of psychological intimidation. Whenever you're trying to diminish a group of people and make them feel like they're outsiders in their own society and don't belong here, you're teaching them that they shouldn't be voting or you're trying to. And uh, when you make appeals to fear and division, you do the same. I would say I just described uh, the dynamics that uh, powered the Donald Trump campaign to victory, but not only him. And so when we're really speaking with voters about love, uh, what we're really doing is offering a very different way for people to think about uh, voting and even more so their place in society and the fact that they belong here and the fact that the people they love are worth standing up for. It's, it's, it's interesting to me because I, yeah, I, I think I might've mentioned to you the last time we talked that I spend a lot of time with people that are non-believers in God who are, are trying to get it, who, who, have conversations with people that are very strong believers in God, oftentimes within their own families. Um, and those conversations often don't go very well. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been in one of those conversations um, where you were talking with somebody on the other side of the faith divide and it wasn't, it wasn't productive or it wasn't helpful. Um, but, but when they're in those conversations, a lot of times, they don't talk about love. It's, it's in, you know, just hearing, hearing you talk about how, in, in a sense, your goal in a lot of this deep canvassing is to try to move the conversation onto the realm of, let me tell you about who I love and let me hear about who you love and let's talk about what love has to do with our lives. Um, and th th that's kind of a win for you. That, that's, that's moving the political conversation in a direction that you want it to go. I sort of feel like it's the same way about this faith conversation that a lot of times people are talking about what's true um, or how, or what they can prove or what the evidence says, but they're not talking about love. They're not talking about loving relationships. They're not talking about how their beliefs or how their, how their lifestyle connects with their relationships. I, I, am I making any sense to you? The connection? Oh, do, you, yeah. do you see any connection? Oh, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, and I think uh, the dynamic you're describing, right, where uh, the person who's trying to instigate change 
tells somebody else what the truth is. Uh, I think a lot of progressives have a wish that's, that that's what we need to do and that it's going to be effective. Uh, I, I don't know where that wish comes from, either in uh, the discussion you're describing, where uh, people who have a different view of God, one of them is offering their version of truth to the other. I don't know where that wish comes from, that I'm going to tell you my truth, and then you're going to become just like me. Uh, I don't know where that wish comes from, but it's, it's the wrong wish. It's the wrong wish in politics, for sure. It's, uh, it means that almost every online communication that progressives have that they think might influence the upcoming presidential election, almost every one of those online communications has zero impact. And uh, I hate to say that because uh, you'd like to think that uh, you don't have millions of people wasting their time, but uh, but you do. But we do. Yeah, yeah. No, and I... so why somebody if uh, so if you're describing somebody who uh, does not believe in God offering their truth to somebody who does believe in God. Why would they do that? Do you think? Yeah. I, what are they I mean, trying to achieve? I guess is what I'm wondering. Well, and what's interesting, yeah, because what's interesting for me is I, I, I think there is this, in a sense, a lot of times the people that are the most adamant in that conversation are people that have that have deconverted themselves, and they're they're feelings angry that they had the wool pulled over their eyes that they wasted time that they were they were deceived if, if by 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 whoever brought them up or whoever converted them and uh and in a sense sometimes i think they're just they're horrified that anybody believes in it and in a sense it's an outworking of their anger they're they're they want to they want to strip the faith away from other people. Um, I don't even think, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. They, they, but, well, but the, it, the, it does sound like an expression of anger. I mean, I feel like you've definitely got an emotional uh, component here that, that could be right. Uh, but, but I also, th I also think there's, there's, there's also a sense in which you want to validate yourself and the way you want to validate yourself is by showing somebody else that you're right and so in some ways i think it's it's, it's sometimes the new non-believer is trying to convince everybody else to be a non-believer as a way of confirming to themselves that it's all right not to be a believer well you know i guess when somebody has recently changed their mind Maybe the act of changing their mind, I don't know, maybe there's some fragility to it. But uh, I, I just know my, my, I guess I would wonder, is that the normative thing that you see? Or is there just as commonly a very different approach when somebody changes their mind about God? 
is, is it just as common that people could initiate those conversations, but instead of doing it driven by anger, uh, uh, they're just bringing love to it. And it's a conversation about love. Sometimes it's very much a conversation. Sometimes what one of the, another motivations that's not anger is a, a kind of a, a, a rescue, a desire to rescue somebody from something that you've decided or come to the conclusion of is very harmful to them. And so mm-hmm. I see a lot of people that having, they look at their believing friends and they see them as sort of trapped in the matrix and they want to rescue them from this deception, from this, that, 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 they, that they think is very harmful. Um, and, you know, and there are, in, in terms of, the, in our politics, there sometimes faith-based political decision-making really does harm a lot of people. You know, it denies rights to people. It, 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 I mean, who am I telling? You, you, you know that better as well as anybody. Um, and so there is this desire sometimes to rescue the believer or to disarm somebody who's aiming to hurt you. And those aren't hateful desires at all. In many ways, they're, they're motivated by love, but they don't often, even though the motivation might be loving, they oftentimes don't bring love into the conversation. So, yeah, uh, rescue, that's a really interesting idea. I, I think, right, the, the problem is you, you can't rescue somebody who doesn't want to be rescued. And so before you begin your rescue effort, it seems to me at the very least, you have to ask the person you, you want to rescue a question. And the question you have to ask them is, uh, are they conflicted? about where they are, right? In other words, are they feeling great uh, about their current view of God or are they feeling great about it and also conflicted about it? Because if you ask somebody uh, if, you're conf- if they're conflicted about it and they say, well, no, then I don't see how the rescue is going to occur any more than if a lifeguard dives into the ocean to rescue somebody and uh, the person who's out there is unconflicted about how they're doing. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and that it, is the, it and that like is the outcome. It might drowning to us, but uh, it doesn't look like drowning to them. That's exactly the outcome most of the time is most of the, you know, I mean, most of the ardent believers that engage with me are trying, they're trying to rescue me. They're trying to pull me back in. And oh, so sure. okay. those conversations and, and, and so what, what I find is, and the reason, the reason why I wanted to bring this up with you is because I sense that you have with infrequent voters, you have one sort of approach and then with hyper conservative voters, you have a, 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 maybe a different set of goals and you're trying to get them to be less prejudiced and when it comes to secular and Christian conversations, I've come to the conclusion that it's a much better goal to, instead of trying to convince that person to abandon their faith in God, 
to try to reduce their prejudice against non-believers or to try to improve their their image of non-believers. So I'm not usually trying to directly undermine somebody's belief system. I'm simply trying to get them to, to see that my way of life is viable or is attractive or, 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 or isn't scary or isn't hostile to them. So I, I feel like the conversation where you're trying to rescue the other person before you can rescue them, you'd need to convince them, as you said, that your side of the of the water or your side of the fence would would not be a hellish place to be because they're certainly not going to get want to get rescued out of their way of life and into yours if they think yours is horrific. Well, here's where I don't know enough about the parallelism between politics and religion, because here's the funny thing about politics is that. Uh, you can talk to a very conservative person who has only voted Republican and, and you can ask them directly, are you conflicted? And they're going to say no. And yet, if you approach it differently, you can discover whether or not they are conflicted. Mm. And of course, not all of them are. But the reason that just asking them directly is not good enough is that that question yes. right yeah right they, if, if right. that you're gonna if you answer that question in the affirmative if you say you're conflicted you're making yourself extraordinarily vulnerable and you're saying other, something about yourself that you don't that nobody wants to say Nobody wants to describe themselves as, yeah, I'm not, I'm uncertain. I don't know myself very well. I, I do things I don't really believe in. Nobody wants to identify that way, even if that's the truth. Well, that's right. That isn't how they see themselves. And yet, uh, this is, uh, so how do you get to the point where somebody who is conflicted will both notice it for themselves and speak it aloud to to you right and okay. the key to that uh right this is why the way that these conversations begin with voters who we want to have an impact on in a way it's not that different with infrequent voters or with conservative voters both of whom we wish to change right um in a way it's very similar because the very first thing we have to do is invite them to share their current opinion. And we have to listen. And, and we have to listen as long as they want to talk about it. Mm. And it really helps for me to write this down and take notes because yeah. that helps me shut up. Uh, and it also, uh, and then. And it tells them that done, you're taking them seriously. It sends a message that you're taking, that you really are registering what yes. they're saying. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm trying to communicate to them that I'm really genuinely curious and right. that I'm really listening. And in fact, I've got to be genuinely curious because if I'm just going through the motions of it and rolling my eyes, either internally or externally, people can tell. So I have to find it in myself. I have to be interested enough in the people who are not like me that I really do want to hear their opinions and then after they're done, and, and, I, and I need to not interrupt, 
And I need to, in fact, do the opposite of interruption, which is even be silent a bit after they're done talking before I start talking. Because if I'm silent for five seconds, they might continue talking. They may have thought of something else that they believe. So I, I, but when they've had a chance to, to say their opinions, then it's very helpful if I repeat them back to them. If I say, wow, so let me make sure I'm getting it right. It sounds like these are the things that feel true to you. And, you know, this just doesn't happen every day. Uh, how often do you feel really listened to, especially by somebody who might not be in agreement with you? It's No, it's, I, I, was just, I was just talking to a therapist friend of mine, and they were talking about the number of times that clients fall in love with their therapist. And they said it has nothing to do with sort of sexual appeal. It has to do with this is oftentimes the first person who's ever listened very carefully to them. Yeah. And it feels so amazing that they go, I think I love you. <laughs> right. Right. I, I would say this might also be why Catholicism has made what turns out to be not only a beautiful and theological, but a functional choice by offering confession. Yeah. Just listen and to And communion. Me. Right. These are so. Uh, so but anyway, that's so that's the first step is we just have to be willing to uh, invite listen. their opinion and listen, that's not sufficient though. No. The, the second step is just as crucial because if we stay in the realm of opinion, we will never affect anybody. People's opinions uh, are artifacts. They are, they are not the, I, I don't wanna make it sound like their opinions are meaningless, but they are the byproduct of something else. And I would say what they are the byproduct of primarily is not careful factual study of the situation or even cognitive reasoning. Uh, they are a byproduct of people's emotional reaction to their real lived experience. So the only place where we can change things is if we move from talking about opinion to emotionally meaningful, real lived experience. And so if, if I listen to somebody's opinions, you would think, okay, maybe that means I can just say, what is your relevant emotional experience here? But, but it does, that doesn't work either because, uh, again, for them to offer that, they're vulnerable. But in addition, uh, right, they may not have reflected on this much. It may not be immediately apparent to them what in the world we mean. No, so and, that, and that's, do, the, that's the street epistemologist telling me the same thing is that they say to somebody, what do you believe? Or yeah. what's your, you know, and the person's very clear on that. And they say, well, you know, how did you get there? Or on what? And, and a lot of times people haven't even stopped to think, well, why, you know, how did I come to believe that or why? It's so basic to them that it almost feels as if it wasn't a decision. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you could ask them, tell me about the relevant emotional experiences that you've had that led you to believe this way. And they were like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I believe it because it makes sense. Well, that's right. And so 
we need to leave opinion. And the best way to leave opinion and start is for us to be the first one to be vulnerable and for us to tell a story about our real lived experience with emotional weight that's relevant here. So if I talk to somebody about voting, uh, whether, you know, whether they want to participate in it or, you know, their conservatism, whatever it is, right? I listen to their opinions, right? And an infrequent voter's opinion might be, this has nothing to do with me. I am not political, right? And the opinion being offered by the conservative voter could be quite different, right? There are a whole bunch of conservative opinions people could offer. Uh, But after listening and then making it clear we've listened, then what helps us is to say, you know, for me, uh, voting, it's political, of course, but it's also very personal. And then I tell a story about a person I love. That's what I do. And it's detailed and it's specific and it does not have a political agenda. It's not like an Aesop's fable where there's a clear moral that Obamacare is good. <laughs> right? It, and it's not a big story. It does not need to be something that could be adapted into the next uh, Marvel movie. Uh, with uh, Meryl Streep as Superwoman, right? Uh, that would be the role played by us, of course, um, right? It, it, uh, in fact, it's better if the story I tell about a person I love is small. So sometimes I tell a story. Uh, I have several stories I tell about my dad because my dad, more than any other person, I love him, uh, but also... It, he's really the one who taught me what it means to be a good person. And he did it by the way he treated other people. And I have all these memories from growing up watching how he treated other people. And so I'll tell a story about, uh, about a time I went with him to the emergency room because he was a pediatrician and, uh, and, and seeing how he treated this uh, guy from Ross County who uh, was really, really different than our family, right? So I could tell you the whole story. It takes a while to tell it. And that's the other thing. Stories take a while. So I'll take two or three minutes to tell a story about somebody I love and why I love them. And, it, and it's about a small thing. And then I ask them, what about you? Who's somebody you love? And, and sometimes people will say, why do you want to know? You know, sometimes people will be skeptical. That's fine. Then I'm just very honest saying, well, I think this is what's really, uh, I think this is what this is all about. It's what really motivates us. Yeah. But often people are quite ready to tell their story. Their story is popping out. How often are they invited to talk about somebody they love? by somebody who seems genuinely interested and who's made themselves vulnerable. So it's clear that they're not there in a judgment capacity. And when people tell me then the story of who they love, I may have to ask a lot of questions to really draw out all the details. 
But you can see that now I'm in a really different position to notice whether they're conflicted because I've heard them tell me two different things. I've heard them tell me their opinions and I've heard them tell me their real lived experience with emotional weight. And if to me they sound in conflict, then I can say to the voter, wow, you know, it's so interesting. I heard you say this in the first part of our conversation, and then I heard you say this, which really sounds different to me. Is it possible that you have conflicting feelings here? And, uh, and in politics, I will tell you this, um, especially talking with conservative voters, some of their opinions at the beginning of the conversation are pretty cruel. Uh, they really reflect a very low opinion of a lot of other people. Uh, but, uh, but often their real lived experience is much less cruel or not cruel at all. And so when I point that out to them and I ask, boy, do they have conflicting feelings? Uh, well, it turns out they do. Right. And, uh, and oh, yeah. then, and, and they- yeah. I was just going to say the, the parallel. I like my mind is buzzing because the parallels are almost identical in the faith conversation. Oh, really? Tell me. Well, I, I get in a conversation with a person of faith who who approaches me either to argue, either because they're upset about something I've said, or just that I exist, or there's somebody in my family and they're concerned for my well being, and they say, "Oh, Bart, I got to talk to you about this faith thing." I say, "What? Tell me what you believe." which is, you know, that's my, my approach. Tell me what you believe. And it's like asking what their political opinion is. And they tell me, and then I do exactly the same pivot. I, 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 instead of saying, well, what I believe is that that makes no sense. Or what I believe is that the world was made this way. Or what I believe is I just like, wow. I said, you know, for me, like, like this is what happened to me. Like this, it's, it's a little bit more personal. Like I, I used to believe that stuff. And then this thing happened, these kids I was working with, like the faith thing didn't work the way I wanted it to when I prayed for them. Or I, 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 like you, I have five or 10 stories where my faith didn't work in the way that I wanted it to. And it was very painful to me where I got disappointed or hurt. Um, and I tell them about somebody I love who the whole God thing didn't work out for or somebody I love who called the thing into question for me. And then when I say to them, like, have you ever had an experience like that where it was really hard to hold on to your faith because of something that was going on in your life? Without fail, nobody ever says to me, no, it's always been easy to hold my faith. Like it totally makes sense. And I've never had a conflict. Everybody Nobody would say initially, are you conflicted about their faith? But when I tell them a story about where my faith is like, yeah, I had a thing like that happen where I prayed for somebody and they died or where something I really needed didn't happen or where I prayed and I didn't feel anything for years or, or whatever. They always have a story to match mine. Um, and then you're able to say like, wow, you know, at the beginning you seem so sure and yet You've, you've got some conflicts here too. And they go like, yeah. And then they'll tell you how a person of faith deals with those conflicts. But the conversation's all of a sudden about on a very different level when we're talking about our experiences of trying to believe in God versus having a 
abstract argument over whether or not Christianity is true. And so it's, it's, it's a direct parallel. It's exactly the same. Yeah. And you're reminding me of conversations that I, I, a lot of the organizing I've done has been in communities of faith. And uh, maybe you're reminding me of some conversations I've had about the relationship between faith and doubt. Because uh, I remember growing up as a boy, my first experiences uh, talking with uh, evangelical people, uh, my understanding was faith meant certainty to them. That's certainly the literal way they expressed it. Uh, When I was in like eighth grade, a friend of mine, Cheryl Hand, uh, uh, brought me over to her house one day. I don't know if I've told you about this before. She, uh, she kept these big notebooks, scrapbook size, and she was showing, walking me through one. She had clipped from the Chillicothe Gazette and the Columbus Dispatch headlines of, uh, floods, fires, uh, all kinds of catastrophes. And what she was telling me is that, you know, uh, the end of the world was coming. It was coming soon. And since I was Jewish, I had a very limited amount of time to, uh, to alter Make my Make your faith. decision for Jesus, yes. Yeah. And she did this in an incredibly kind way. I'm describing it in a way where maybe it sounds uh, slightly ridiculous, but it did not feel ridiculous. Uh to her. No, she was a rescuer. She was a rescuer. Yeah. And she was uh, trying to rescue you. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, her faith sounded like uh, certainty, but it didn't sound uh, coming from her unkind. Uh, and I was very polite uh, and <laughs> wasn't interested. Uh, and part of what I was thinking, though, uh, was. Uh, I felt sorry for her. And I, I, I think that impulse on my part is actually not any smarter than any of the stuff she was telling me because I, I was assuming that the certainty that I was hearing in her words around her faith were the whole story. But I never really asked her the questions that I hope I would have the humility to ask now, which would lead me to maybe discover that along with her faith and along with the literal statement of what she believed coexisted, uh, for lack of a better word, what you're describing which is doubt, where people see their faith not fully explaining or feeling sufficient in the moment where uh, something of great emotional significance is happening for them and for people they love. So, so I guess my question is, so you get to that point in a political conversation where a person, you know, they tell you a story that's tender and it sort of contrasts with a political 
expression earlier in the conversation that wasn't so tender. And you sort of said like, gosh, that these two things don't seem to necessarily fit into the same box. You know, are, are, are you trying, is your goal to say like, do you see the conflict there? Or how do you turn the conversation at that point? Well, first I just, I say, I, 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 I try to keep it to me, not advising them. So because I, I, what I worry about is that it would seem like you were, you, you were like, gotcha. Yeah, See? no, no. What I want to do I is a point say, here. I heard you say this, and then I heard you say this, and I'm wondering, uh, it sounds like maybe you're conflicted. Do you, do you feel like maybe you're conflicted? So right off, I just want to know, do they see these things as being in conflict? Because if they don't, uh, uh, I don't think I have more, mu- much more to do here. But Right, if they go, nope, these things fit together for me. I got no problems. But if they you, say, you you're right, I have conflicting feelings, then I can ask them, not tell them, I can ask them, you know, how do you want to resolve the conflict? How do you want to put these two things together? And what happens then is uh, mostly my listening, but, but sometimes it's a back and forth. But the truth of it is, even though people's opinions uh, have been stated maybe with vehemence, people believe their real lived experience more than they believe their opinions. And so once they notice that their real lived experience actually is in conflict with their opinions, they are more likely to modify their opinions. And not everybody does it and not everybody does it simultaneously, right? Right. It's not that they necessarily, uh, they they don't or instant or instantaneously they don't do it right in that moment necessarily well they might or might not that's right so it it and in fact all kinds of things can happen in that moment uh but but once once we've gotten there uh what what i've discovered is uh some of the people and, and the funny thing is at the beginnings of the conversations, I honestly can't tell much of the time among conservative voters who is going to be unmovable and who is going to be movable. It, it really, uh, I, I, I can't, I, 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 and, and in politics at the moment, the way it's practiced, there's an enormous desire on the part of political consultants and political practitioners to triage. And uh, triage is almost the nicest word I can use. Uh, Essentially, they throw away- To snap judge, to to quickly judge who's gettable. Well, they judge before they interact with the people at all. So what they're really likely to do is on the basis of polling data, which are really terribly poor at predicting who might change their mind, uh, in my experience, right? Uh, they, on the basis of glorified polling data and some models and algorithms that they've developed 
that have gone uh, that that are vastly over inclusive and under inclusive at identifying the population of persuadable people. Uh, they never even contact the people who would be in the universe of people we might want to change. Instead, they go for some tiny, tiny, tiny subset of this that is almost arbitrarily selected. And uh, I guess what I've learned from deep canvassing is how often I'm surprised that, you know, uh, this, the guidance that I would be offered in terms of persuadability scores uh, or other targeting measures. Uh, it, it, it's, it's so unhelpful. I am better off talking to everybody. <laughs> and, and, and it may be. Did you, did you? Yeah. No. Yeah. Did you ever, I don't know if you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book blink. Oh yeah. Okay. But he talks about used car dealers. And he says that, you know, people walk on the lot. Some guy walks on in a slick Armani suit and they go, ooh, this is going to be great. And some guy walks on the lot wearing dirty overalls and a ripped T-shirt. And, th and they go like, yeah, well, you know, I'm not even going to bother. And, he's, and he said that the great car salesmen always know that you treat everybody equally not out of any sense of egalitarianism, but because you flat out don't know who showed up on the lot today ready to buy a car. You have no idea. And, and, and your triage, your early triage stuff is – the margin of error is so great that they are useful, useless, that, that, that you are better off just going like, you know what? I have no idea who this person is until I start talking to them. Well, yeah. And, 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 and here's some of the reasons this is true, by the way, and maybe it's even more apparent in the example you're giving, because you realize if the only data that you're paying attention to is the voter or the car buyer, you're missing at least half the data because it's really, can you connect with them? I am half the data. Right. In other words, I'm not equal of any of these conversations. No. Yeah. Of any conversation you're in. Yeah. Right. I, in other words, am I going to persuade this voter has something to do with them and something to do with me and something to do with who we are together? And and uh, and so deciding that you're going to triage when you've got this very oversimplified uh, view, this mechanistic view of the other person, and you're not even taking into account the possibilities that uh, a human being could bring to an interaction with that person, means that you're vastly uh, in danger, you're, you're really in danger of misjudging all the time, which is your point about the Malcolm Gladwell example. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, I'm a, a little voice is ringing in my ear. It's just going like, don't, you know, that, that phrase in journalism, don't bury the lead in terms of the conversation, the parallel between this and the conversation so many people have in their families about whether it's politics or especially religion, people 
if given the opportunity, they tend to trust their lived experiences more than they trust their opinions. And I am convinced that that is the key to having healthy, even if they're not ultimately winning conversations with people who think differently, is to ground the conversation in lived experiences, to tell stories and to elicit stories. Um, if only because that is, the, if, if there's going to be any change of, of mind, it's, it's going to happen there when, they see, when people see some kind of a conflict between their lived experience and the thing that they're, they're telling you. But, but if you directly attack the logic of their argument, you are almost vanishingly small possibility of, of seeing any kind of real engagement or change. Well, I've never seen it happen. <laughs> in other words, and, and when I think about my own experience, right, in my own life, when have I changed my mind about something really important? It's not common, right? Uh, but it's happened. And, <clears throat> and it's never happened because somebody gave me a good talking to and wagged their finger in my face. It, it really... Uh, and, and, and for, some pe- for some very logical people, it does happen, not with the wagging finger, but sometimes people are overpowered by the force of argument. But I would say it's a very small set of the population that are scientific thinking enough naturally to be swayed by evidence. Most of us are swayed by experience or by emotion. And so that's, that's where I think the deep canvassing thing connects with the the cross-faith conversation thing because you have to move it from opinions and beliefs down to the level of experiences and feelings. Yes, and I think the thing I would even add is even people where we might have the impression that a fact we've offered has landed in a powerful way. What really matters is not what has happened at this moment alone, we really care about changing people in a way that endures. And I, so what I've noticed, right, is that once an adult decides for themselves uh, on the basis of their real lived experience that they've that they're changing part or all of their mind about something. And once they revise their opinion to match their real lived experience, there's a much greater chance that's going to last. And, and that's what we need. Because if we had to go talk for 15 or 20 minutes to every infrequent voter at every election, that might feel Sisyphean, but if we uh, have that conversation and we begin something where they're now much more likely to be voting in every election without our further intervening, right? Uh, there's much more of a chance that we're we're we could move away from the very perilous point we are now. Because yeah, very- that alignment, that alignment is sort of self reinforcing. 
Yeah. Once, once a person starts to see these connections and they start to vote out of, a, 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 or, or start to act in ways that are grounded in their own experience and they, then their own experience reinforces like the, 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 the behavior that you're trying to get at. Oh, exactly. And because, uh, you know, the very perilous point we're at now as a country is we have uh, the largest group of people who could be voting or not voting. And it's not because they're indifferent. It's not because they're apathetic. It's not because they're stupid. Uh, it, it's, but it, 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 there is nothing automatic about their engaging and voting without our intervening. And, and, but if we have uh, the biggest group of people in the country not participating and the relatively uh, and the so we've got a group of people who are participating that's almost equally divided. We tend to think, oh, the country is equally divided. The country's not equally divided into two parts. It, it, it's closer to being equally divided into three parts. It, 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 it because we've really got a bunch of people who really agree with a more progressive, humane view. But the biggest group of them are are not don't, participating. Don't well, the, the, and you know what? I'm gonna. I, I'm, it's funny. I'm listening to my granddaughter downstairs, and I'm realizing that uh, my my time of freedom has ended, and my time of babysitting uh, is about to start again. Um, but but what I hear you saying, uh, uh, to summarize, and, and actually not to summarize, but to 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 all, feel free. That's my, cool. My, okay, it's my conclusion. Yeah. Is there's 400, there's, there's roughly 400 days between now and the election. And we could spend, if a person is saying, I don't know what, to, I know what to do on election day, but I don't know in between now and then what to do. It seems to me the most direct application of what your experience and what you're telling me is partly like, yeah, when you talk to people, talk this way. But more importantly, I think that there's this understanding that we all need to have that there's a tremendous number of people who are potential votes for a more loving America who are not planning to vote. They are not naturally inclined to vote. They are not, it is not in their habit to vote. And that our job over the next 400 days is to really connect with those people and to try to help them to see some kind of a connection between voting and their lived experience of life in the world and in the universe and in America today. That there's a sense in which the, the, peop, the, the most important thing that we need to do is to turn out non-voters because if we turn out non-voters, love is gonna do a lot better. Yes, and the one thing I would just add is, and most of those non-voters, believe it or not, they are already registered to vote. So, although it's good to talk to people who are not registered to vote, the amazing thing is that you, you might not know who the infrequent voters are who are in your life or who are your neighbors or who are sitting next to you at church or who are sitting next to you at work, right? 
you you might need to begin simply by finding a kind, vulnerable way to check in with people about this. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a great phrase to check in because there's this sense in which I, 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 don't, I don't think to ask people. I, 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 I always ask young people, are you registered? But what do you think is the right check-in question? Did you vote in the last election? When was the last time you vote? What's a, what's a good check-in question? Well, I, I think, there, first of all, there's no one magic question. Right. Because uh, people over-report whether they voted. They know what the right answer is. <laughs> so if you ask, you know, did you vote in the last election? A lot of people might say yes when they didn't. I think a good check-in question is, you know, I know that not everybody votes every time. Uh, I was wondering, you know, when you think back, have you ever missed an election, do you think? Because that way they say, well, maybe I might have. Right, right. Anything other than absolutely not (laughs) means, yes, they are an infrequent voter. And if you just decide to proceed then to explore that more with them. Yeah. But but don't dwell. If you dwell on it too much, it's going to feel like judgment. So you really just want to ask once and. And then if you think maybe you're talking to an infrequent voter, have the conversation. If you want, though, you really could, especially if you were going to go around your neighborhood, voter lists that are public records will tell you for each of your neighbors, have they ever missed an election? It, it's not that hard. Uh, and And so you actually could even take you could go down to the Board of Elections or go to the Secretary of State website, but you have a variety of places you could look. And if you made a list of 20 people on your block who you know, you might discover, oh, 10 of them are infrequent voters. And then you might decide, oh, I'll, I'll talk to one or two of them. Uh, or in the normal course of things, when I do talk with them, Maybe I won't ask them if they're infrequent voters. I'm just going to have this conversation. Well, and of course, if you get to the vulnerability thing, um, the good news for many of us, including myself, is I can say, you know, I've missed a few elections. You know, like I, I can be vulnerable there and say, you know, I've been thinking, you know, have you ever missed an election? And they go like, yeah, maybe I have. I go, you know, I have too. And and yet I'm thinking right now that this election, you know, it's, it's pretty personal to me. Like, I really don't want to miss this one. And then I'm into a personal story about why this stuff matters to me right now. Um, and, and so I, I, I really do. I, for me, that's the practical thing is the, the notion. And I didn't know that you could find out who in your neighborhood had missed elections, who was registered but didn't vote. Um, but it seems to me that those are the people that, uh, that we need to try to find ways to engage. And I'm just so grateful to you that you're not, not, not just that you're coming back to Ohio to do that stuff, but just that in general, I feel like you're spending a lot of time figuring out how do we engage people that need to be engaged in ways that are 
not only for love, but that are, they're not only loving in their ends, but they're also loving in their means. And, and that, you know, I think is so often we, we use non-loving methods because we say, well, you know, but the end justifies the means and what we want, what we have in mind is good. So we don't have to be nice to people along the way because our, our objective is nice. And I think it's really important that the way we pursue goodness be in itself good and the way we pursue love be in itself loving. And I'm just so grateful um, for the work you're doing in, in all this stuff. It means a lot to me. Well, thanks, Bart. It's really great talking with you about this. And, uh, and, and it's really fascinating to me that the way you've discovered this has been in the context of your changing your mind about, about religion and God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I had an experience once with a young person and I, I remember we got in this thing and, and I said to him, I said, so when you figure out that you're wrong about something, when you figure out that you're just dead wrong and you change your mind, how does that make you feel? And I thought he, he would say embarrassed, or I thought he would say, you know, ashamed or something like that. He looked at me with bright eyes and he said, it, it, it's amazing. It's amazing to change your mind. And, uh, and I found that in my experience, that there's something exhilarating and very humanizing about changing your mind. It's, it's a beautiful experience. And, and I think in some ways, when you give that experience to somebody else, when you, when you, when you create an opportunity for them to change their mind, sometimes you might think like, ha, I defeated them. And I think like <laughs> in, a, in, in a real argument, in, in, in a really good conversation or a really good argument, um, the loser is the winner and the winner doesn't feel that way. Um, you know, that it's really about creating a situation where people are allowed to change their mind and where they are in, where they are affirmed for changing their mind. Cause if we're not changing our minds, we're not growing. Right. Cause what you're really describing there, right. On the part of the person who's instigated the change is this enormous willingness not to take credit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or maybe more accurately, uh, and they have an accurate humility about their limited role in the situation, <laughs> which yeah. uh, that's that's uh, that really is. Uh, we all know people who've given us a gift like that as we've grown up. Yeah, yeah. No teachers, people, friends. Yeah, who who had a lot to do with our are coming into ourselves or figuring something out about themselves, but never said, Hey, you know, I was the one who, you know, I did that, you know, like, remember when I said that, um, who just stand back and go like, wow, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. Um, yeah, we have people like that. And I, I know you're a person like that in some of my young friends lives and I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful for this conversation. Listen, when you come back to Chillicothe, when you're coming back to Southern Ohio, like seriously, like next 400 days, I, like I'm on your team. Like, I, I, I think I might be able to enlist some other people. So when you have a sense of what it is, of, of, of where you want to deploy some people around Cincinnati, you get, you get with me fast, okay? Gladly. All right, brother. I'll talk to you soon. 
Thanks, Bart. Take care. All right, so I hope you liked that conversation. I love that guy. And I think there's depth there. Now, listen. So we talked with Magna Bosco about his, his sort of encounters with people on the street. And then we talked with Fleischer about like stopping in somebody's home. That's a different kind of encounter. And, and, and we're going we're gonna to keep moving and, 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 and trying to drill down to the, the place where a lot of us live, which is how do we talk to the person that we're already connected to, related to, friends with, who's suddenly or not so suddenly on the other side of a very important idea. And that's, we'll, we'll, we'll hit that next time. But for now, I've got a quote for you that I think David would like. I bet Anthony would like. I know I like. It's from Maya Angelou, um, who my granddaughter was named after. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. Oh, that's good. That's true. And that's something to think about before you start any conversation. How do I want this person to feel when it's over? Not what do I want them to know? (laughs) Not what do I want them to hear? Not what do I want them to do? How do I want them to feel when this conversation's over? Ah, that's a beauty. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did but people will never forget how you made them feel. Ah, take that. Take that with you. And I'll see you when you come back next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life.